I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. This is Lars. Thanks again for checking out my podcast. Enjoy your day and the show, and let's make America great again. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on Conspiracy Theory Thursday and glad to take your phone calls. Your daughters and your granddaughters face an existential question when it comes to where they fit in American society and who they will be required by law to compete against. I want to get into that in just a moment. But first, I want to invite you to the show. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show, and I'll give you the details on the question in just a moment. You're going to want to vote on it. You'll find it two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter. And yes, Twitter does appear to be getting better under its new management of Elon Musk. But even if you don't like Twitter, go to my website at LarsLarson.com. You can vote there. It counts for the same. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 22 and a half years with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. Now, depending on the political ideology that America supports in its votes next Tuesday, and by the way, I encourage you to turn in your vote on Tuesday. I know you're getting a lot of chatter about turn your ballot in now, turn it in now. Sure, have hundreds of thousands of ballots just sitting there in the elections office, not counted, allegedly not molested. Yeah, what could possibly be wrong? But depending on the ideology that voters back, well, your daughters and granddaughters or sisters may be told that they are going to be up against impossible odds. And I think there's a great illustration of it today. I want to play those sound bites in just a moment. 
It involves a run for Congress. Now, it involves a candidate that I've endorsed, and that is Joe Kent, running for the 3rd District in Washington State to represent Washington State in the U.S. Congress. And he's running against a tried-and-true socialist liberal by the name of Marie Glusenkamp Perez. But I want to point out a phenomenon that I want you to notice, because I've been seeing it for a long, long time. One of the most confounding things about liberals today is that they will tell you, cross their hearts and hope to die, that they are very much in favor of one thing or another. Usually it's something crazy. But when they actually get called on, how's that actually going to work? Who does it actually benefit? Who does it hurt? At that point, they turn coward and try to run away. Now, I know somebody's going to say, well, Republicans do the same thing. I don't think so. I mean, if you talk to a conservative and you say, uh, you say that you're in favor of lower taxes and smaller government, most of us will say, damn right, smaller taxes, less government, more individual liberty. You don't run away from that kind of thing. If somebody says to you, and I've had this said to me by listeners all the time, they'll say, Lars, you say you're in favor of Second Amendment rights. Would we be a better society if everybody in society owned a gun? I say, well, if you want to make it that clear, everybody owns a gun. Felons, children, everybody. I'd say yes. They say, that can't be. I said, well, that's not the society we live in because guns are restricted to adults, non-felons, people who have been sent to a mental institution by a judge, people who have not abused people in their households. We do have those limitations now, but if you want to ask me whether we'd be better off in a society in which all citizens own guns or no citizens own guns, if you want to make it one of those either-or propositions, I'll defend that one all day long and twice on Sunday. You go right down the list of things. If you say to a conservative, hey, should we pursue every form of energy available to man and get as much energy as we possibly can? Conservatives will say, absolutely right. Let's pursue wind and solar. That's fine. Maybe they'll pencil out, maybe not. But should we also pursue coal and oil and natural gas and nuclear power and available hydro and everything else? Yeah, pursue all of it. Then you have the liberals who say, for example, they want to back eliminating all fossil fuels from America. But when they're questioned about how's that actually going to work when we eliminate two thirds of the electricity in the country and we can't replace it, they run away from the question. They'll tell you they're 100% in favor of letting a whole bunch of convicted criminals out of prison. But when they're questioned on, is that not going to increase crime? They run away from it. And in this particular case, they back the so-called rights of born biological men who make themselves appear as women and say they identify as women, and then they compete in women's sports. And you understand the predictable outcome of that. But when they're put on the spot about it, they run away. And if your first response is, it's sports, what difference does it make? It's just sports. You know, what possible difference could it make at this point? Yes, I'm channeling a little bit of Hillary Clinton there. It makes a huge difference. If you compete in sports in high school, you may earn a scholarship that'll let you fly through college debt-free or not. If you compete in sports, you learn leadership skills or maybe not. And if you're a young lady who has to compete against biological men, you understand we're already seeing the outcome of that as biological men compete as women against women and the women lose. So what happens when people running for the Congress, Joe Kent, who I've endorsed, I have a dog in the fight, and Marie Glusenkamp Perez, in this case, Perez gets the question and it's very clear and yet her answer is anything but. Take a listen. 
Do you support biological males competing in biological female sports? Um, I, I think that is the. It, is, it's, it depends. When do they transition? What are their hormone levels? I mean, when you when you really look at um, athletes, have all different natural hormone levels. So there's, it is a nuanced question. It's a nuanced question. She can't answer yes or no. And why not? It is a yes or no question. Either you're going to let biological males compete against females or you're not. And she runs away from the question. So the questioner tries to make it even more clear. This is a yes or no matter. Take a listen to her response. So yes, you, you do support that? It, it depends on the yes scenario. Yes or no. Yes or no. Yes or no. We're faced with situations where it's either a yes or no. Either the, the biological male competes or the biological male does not compete with women. And so we have to make that decision. Yeah, I, I don't think you're understanding the nuance of these issues. Oh. I know that, you know, can, do you understand why that crowd is angry? Because she said, well, you don't understand the nuance. We have to test their hormone levels. No, we don't. There are biological men competing against women. And you say, well, they have to meet a certain set of criteria and their hormone levels have to be balanced and all this. The bottom line is, if biological men swim against women, they generally win. If they wrestle, and they do in some states wrestle against women, they win. When they run track and field against girls, they win. And the problem is, we've spent a few decades under Title IX saying we've got to provide equal opportunity to women and now we've got the Democrats and their lunatic policies on transgender, which is two-thirds of 1% of the U.S. population, saying, no, you've got to let those biological men go in there and take every trophy away from every young woman. You're going to have to tell your daughter or your granddaughter, I'm sorry, you would have run track and field in decades gone by, but a guy is going to beat you every time, and he's the one who's going to get the scholarship because he calls himself a woman. Glad to have you with me on a Thursday. Always glad to take your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Coming up, some real reasons to hold on to your ballot till Tuesday. You've got the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. I just want to ask you to think about this for a moment. Put your partisan politics aside and see if this adds up for you. Modern technology for counting ballots. Huge numbers of voted ballots already sitting in the elections office on the day of the election. That's where we're going to arrive at Tuesday of next week. There will be stacks of finished ballots already there, machines that then sort the ballots and then count the actual ballots. Yet somehow that takes longer than ballots that were once counted by hand in America. I know there's a push this week to get your ballot in right now. I would suggest you resist that. My advice, wait until the last day. That's what I've done for years with my ballot, and Tina and I have done the same thing, and we'll do it this time as well. Drop it off yourself at the elections office on election day. And probably, if you really are smart, don't drop it in one of those ballot stuffing boxes where the election mules drop off their harvested ballots. 
A hundred years ago, America, with no special technology or computers, managed to get national elections counted in the same day. In fact, prior to 2020, almost every single election, not just president, but House and Senate and everything else, they all produced a result on election night until 2020. I still remember back in 1980 when Jimmy Carter actually conceded the election for president before the freaking polls even closed in Oregon. And I remember that specifically because I was covering the election for KXL that year and we still had poll voting. I saw people walk away from the polls. They'd been standing in line, ready to vote, and they walked away before 8 o'clock. Why? Because the whole thing was over before they even voted. And then in 2020, vote counting was stopped right in the middle of the count, only in key battleground states with no sensible reason given. Oh, I know, the water main break in Atlanta, Georgia. Sure, sure, turned out to be a leaky men's urinal instead, and I'm not joking about that. And overnight, the results magically changed to deliver, allegedly, a bigger win for Joe Biden, even than Barack Obama had achieved. This week, Joe Biden declared that delays in vote counting are normal. And since you won't necessarily believe, you're saying you're interpreting that, Lars. Let me read the quote from Slow Joe. We won't know the winner of the election for a few days. He somehow knows this a week ahead of time. That's how this is supposed to work. That is a quote from the president of the United States saying, we already know the election won't be on time. We already know we won't have a result on election night. We already know that it's going to be days later, maybe weeks. No, Joe, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's how you cheat when your party is about to lose a rather major election. Our question of the day from David Helmick. Lars, I hope you're reading this on a Thursday. It's a bit of a conspiracy theory. Recently, they've been making fun of Joe for the fact that he said he's visited 54 states. I seem to remember Barack Obama making the same statement of having to campaign in 58 states. Well, my conspiracy is this is one more indicator of who's actually running the White House. It was Barack Obama talking into Joe's earpiece, signed David Helmick. David, that's one hell of a theory for Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And by the way, it was right here in the Pacific Northwest that Barack Obama said that. He actually said 58 because he said we've campaigned in, what, 57 states, one more to go? Barack Obama believed there were 58 states in America. Joe Biden thinks there are 54. How about we choose somebody the next time who actually knows how many states there are? And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. Well, I'm going to award today's Daily Grill. Usually I give it to somebody in the Pacific Northwest. In this case, the National Institutes of Health. Yes, the same folks who funded all that gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China, that likely produced the coronavirus or COVID-19. The feds paid, get this, $1.2 million to study if poor sleep is caused in America by racism. 
Reported by the Center Square, the NIH issued more than a million dollars via taxpayer-funded medical research grants to find evidence that racism is to blame for poor sleep in minority communities. The studies are based on the hypothesis that the disparity in sleep health in the black community is thought to be explained partly by experiences of interpersonal racial discrimination. This application focuses on police use of deadly force on unarmed black Americans as a cardinal manifestation of structural racism. Well, anybody who knows that issue well knows that, yes, there are people who are shot by the police, about a thousand every year. And how many of them are black Americans? About a quarter of that number, about 250. And how many of them are armed? Almost none of them are unarmed. And if they are unarmed, they're in a situation like behind the wheel of a car where they may not have a gun or a knife, but they do have a weapon. And who is usually their victim? Well, that would be other black Americans. Maybe other black Americans are losing sleep because they realize that the folks calling the shots in most of the big cities are Democrats. They're not willing to police the streets. They're not willing to put criminals behind bars. And most of the victims are going to be other people of color. Now, today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. TheMEIGroup.com. John writes in, Lars, my mechanic and his wife immigrated from Venezuela. They claim the situation now happening in the U.S. was happening in Venezuela in the early 2000s. Unrestrained printing of currency, devaluing the money supply. U.S. is doing a similar thing. Venezuela had skyrocketing inflation. The U.S. is experiencing huge jumps in inflation. Venezuela has a dictatorship governing with Marxist principles. The U.S. is in the middle of a so-called democratic socialist movement that more resembles a communist undermining of an established representative government. From an observer's point of view, I believe America is on a parallel path to that with Venezuela. Thanks for being the mouthpiece for Intelligent Talk Radio. Signed, John. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And we like to call Thursdays Conspiracy Theory Thursday. So let me ask you this question. Do you trust the election counting systems used here in the Pacific Northwest, in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho? Let me tell you why you should not. We have uh, two parallel stories, one of them from a week ago, one of them from today. The one from today quotes Dan Forrester, the Washington County Elections Manager, and we're going to ask Mr. Forrester to come on. I'm not going to hold my breath. He may or may not. He says there's a lot of concern from the public that tabulation systems might be vulnerable to hacking or they might be programmed to deliver false results. This is misinformation. Now, that's the elections manager in Washington County. At the same time, there's a lawsuit going on in Washington County about that very question. And the state of Oregon has had to answer it. So in a joint answer from the Oregon Attorney General and the Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, they said in their answer, quote, Oregon tabulators are subject to wireless attacks. And if this extra information is released because of the lawsuit, it would cause irreparable harm to Oregon's election system. So you've got Washington County elections saying no chance of hacking. And you've got the Oregon AG and Secretary of State saying we're already vulnerable to hacking. Who do you want to believe? Because they contradict each other. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on Conspiracy Theory Thursday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, before I go to our guest, 
I want to remind you of something, and we might even take this interview and put it back up at the top of the website because we did it all the way back more than a year ago. I got the state fire marshal on, in this case from the state of Oregon. I've tried to get the state fire marshal from Washington State unsuccessfully, but this young lady who was the fire marshal at the time came on, and my question to her was, don't these homeless camps present a real life and safety issue when it comes to fire, and you are the state fire marshal? And the answer, we kept going around in circles, was, well, we trust our local partners, meaning cities and counties, to actually enforce the fire codes. And then when the cities and and counties don't do that, the state fire marshal does nothing. And I presented that to her. I said, what happens when your local partners don't bother to do the job and enforce the law? I said, lives are put at risk. Aren't you going to do something about that? And her answer was essentially no. She was not going to do anything about it. It's up to the cities and the counties. Well, on top of all that, now this year comes this story by Natalie O'Neill at WWeek.com. And Aaron Mesh is the news editor there. Aaron, welcome to the program. And would you mind telling my audience what percentage of all the fires in the biggest city in Oregon and the second biggest city in the Northwest are a result or come at homeless camps? In 2021, that percentage was 42%. In the first two months of 2022, that number shot up to 52%, so half. Half the fires are resulting at homeless camps. Does that suggest to anybody in officialdom that that, that there's a, a nexus to that problem? Because this isn't uh, all fires involve redheaded homeowners or all fires involve people with left hand, you know, who are left-handed. This is a particular type of housing uh, of people that is rather informal, to put it uh, uh, lightly, uh, but is also uh, remarkably dangerous and I would say in violation of most of the city and county codes that exist in any of the Northwest states. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the documents inside the Fire Bureau and their budget documents and in their uh, in the missives that they have sent to city officials, it's very clear that the top brass at the Fire Bureau considers this to be uh, a significant danger not only to their own fire personnel, but to the life and safety of housed and unhoused Portlanders. All right, so you have 2,000 fires, more than 2,000 last year, 2048, uh, that happen in or near uh, what you call houseless camps. I, I, I guess they'll keep changing the name on it every time one of the names becomes unpopular. Um, but is anything, is anything being done about it? Because when people ask me about the so-called houseless, the homeless, I call them drug-addicted squatters, I say, just go out and enforce the law. Say, you can't live this way. You can't have housing in which people are inside of, in some cases, even uh, structures that are not built to code. If the rest of us have to abide by the codes, and I've got my own disagreements with the codes, but if we have to abide by the codes, then everybody abides by them for life safety. And they say, yes, you have to abide by the codes. But we've got this population of thousands of people living in things that that violate the code all day long. Yeah, I mean, I I think this fits into a bee that's been in my bonnet for a while. As you well know, there's a ordinance city council today, the mayor's five part large uh, encampment plan. Yep. That a lot of which is unfunded. I mean, basically all of which is unfunded and a lot of which seems to me to be pie in the sky. Uh, the the most controversial aspects of, of those ordinances are a 500-person, three 500-person homeless camps uh, that will be a sanctioned camping sites and then a ban on street camping across the city. 
It's always struck me, however, and this is this is the bee in my bonnet, that a lot of the problems that you see in Portland homeless camping could, in fact, be solved by the enforcement of the law as currently written. In other words, there isn't actually any need to create uh, a new plan with an unfunded mandate. You could just, in fact, tell police officers to do their job. Yeah, you could. And by the way, I know everybody gets their, you know, gets wrapped around their own axle when it comes to the Boise decision, which was where the Ninth Circus Court of Appeals said, if you've criminalized homelessness, then you can't do that unless you provide an alternative. The cities of the Northwest, both in Oregon and Washington, have said, oh, you mean even the civil infractions? Because if a cop walks up and says, you can't camp on this property, he isn't necessarily saying, I'm going to arrest you and charge you with a crime. He's just saying, this is not legal. You need to stop it. And, and, well, and in I, that case, further, that should be legal. I would legal. go further than that. I would go further than that. I would, I would say that uh, the criminalization of homelessness, that is putting someone into the criminal justice system for not having a place to sleep, is, something, is not something you need to do in order no. to enforce the, trouble, the troubling things that we're seeing on the streets of Portland. Here are a few laws that we could enforce. <laughs> no auto chop shops. No open-air drug markets. No large structures placed on public property. These things have nothing to do with the question of whether or not you are sleeping outdoors. These things have to do with the question of whether or not public spaces are intended for the larger public. And the thing is, the the the, the thing the the problem that uh, Natalie O'Neill has identified this fires. People say, well, fires, but not a big deal. People in the Northwest, in Eugene, in Portland, and in Seattle, have either been badly hurt and in some cases have died as a result of fires in homeless camps. Now, I understand people say, well, that's impossible to imagine. Well, I don't know. You pile up a whole bunch of people who are smoking, using drugs, using propane, piling up large piles of flammable materials, and then they confine themselves into a you know, a nylon tent and zip the, the door closed, especially in weather like this. Uh, could you get trapped in a situation like that? Absolutely. Have people well, been trapped and killed? Yeah, they have. I'm going to keep going further than you're going. Not only could you, people have. Nine in the last four years, people have burned to death inside their own homeless camps. Yep. I don't think you can look at the situation that currently exists on Portland streets in a clear-eyed manner and describe it as being either safe for unhoused people or safe for housed people. It is a public safety crisis. And here's the thing, Aaron, if, if you used, and this is why I thought the mechanism we explored last year was on point, you go to the state fire marshal, and I put the question to her, I said, if you found a large hotel, and I'd actually covered stories like this a few decades ago, where they had old hotels, SRO hotels, that had 90-foot dead-end hallways, no egress. You know, if, you, if there was a fire that started somewhere and you were trapped at the end of that hallway, you were dead. And they'd go in and literally red-tag the building. And what that means is that's the city, not with criminal penalties, but with civil penalties, saying, you shut this thing down now and everybody gets out immediately. And until you fix this situation, nobody is allowed to live here. They have, I've seen them do that with older buildings. Say, you're just, and they can do it with houses, too. They can go to a family and say, your house is in such bad shape. It puts the people living in the house in danger. You must evacuate the house now and stay out till you fix the problem. The city could do that, and it doesn't even brush up against the Boise decision, does it? I, I wouldn't think so. Again, the Boise decision is, pretty, is in my mind, pretty clear. The Boise decision, which I think many of your listeners are familiar with, says that you cannot tell people that they cannot sleep outdoors 
unless there is a place for them to sleep indoors, more or less, unless there is a shelter space. Right. But I've never felt, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but it does not seem to me to be particularly controversial to say that simply because you are allowed to sleep outdoors means that you can sleep anywhere you like outdoors. It does not mean that you can sleep on the lawn of the mayor's house. It doesn't mean that. It never has, and it won't. So therefore, that means that time and place and manner ordinances can still be enforced. Well, I'll tell you what I think might break it loose. John DiLorenzo has gone after them with ADA. I'd like to, I'd honestly like to see somebody who is the family member of somebody who died in a homeless camp bring a lawsuit against the civil authorities, the mayor, the city council, et cetera, and say, you knowingly allowed a life safety dangerous situation to exist. My family member died. That's a wrongful death. And that lawsuit would change things. Aaron Mesh, you can find the story at wweek.com. You got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Jar Twitter poll today on this Conspiracy Theory Thursday. Do you trust the election counting systems used in Northwest elections? We're told by the elections managers like Dan Forrester. I would accept a call from Mr. Forrester any day of the week. I'd accept a call today. He said there's a lot of concern from the public that tabulation systems might be vulnerable to hacking or that they might be programmed in such a way to deliver false results. This is misinformation. A pretty definitive statement. But then I have to point to the statement made in the same county as Dan Forrester because there's a lawsuit going on brought by 10 Oregon counties against the state of Oregon seeking more information about those tabulating machines. And in the response to that lawsuit, the Oregon Attorney General, Ellen Rosenblum, and uh, the Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, part of their answer said this quote oregon tabulators are subject to wireless attacks and if the information being sought in this lawsuit is released it would cause irreparable harm to oregon's election system so again you've got the elections manager for one big county in oregon saying ah this is all bad information i'm surprised you didn't blame it on the russians and you've got the oregon attorney general and secretary of state saying by the way our machines are subject to hacking now i i suspect they're all from the same political party but they're telling two very different uh, uh, stories so do you trust the election counting systems used in northwest elections i would say no today's twitter poll is brought to you by ultimate truck services if you rely on trucks for business ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Yesterday's question, if your kid ran for office and lied about his history, would you call him or her out publicly? And there is a, a Washington state man who has called out his son, Clyde Shavers, who's running for the state legislature. And dad, dad says he talked to his kid, said, look, you're lying about your military history and you're lying about where you live. And if you don't do something about it, I'm going to call you out publicly. And dad has done exactly that. I hope all of us would have the moral courage to say, if your kid starts lying and pulling the wool over the eyes of voters, that if the kid won't set it straight, man or woman, then you will. Let's go to Paul. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, Lars? I really love listening to your show. I just want to let you know, so I got something... um, Actually, not me, but my daughter got got a uh, pamphlet in the mail the other day, and it's a voter uh, it's a voter help. It's supposed to guide her on how she is supposed to vote. It looks very official, and um, all it is is you open it up, and it goes through the different measures. You know, measure uh, one fourteen, measure one thirteen, the different measures here in Oregon, 
Yep. And it just puts blatantly, it says, hey, you need to vote yes on every one of these things. And uh, it, it, it's, it's not, like I said again, it's not even sponsored by uh, anything that's actually official. It's, it has other sponsors and fine print. My, my complaint, Lars, is um, my daughter, although she's very smart, she uh, is an impressionable young 19-year-old. And, and like most kids these days, they want things fast and they want things easy. Uh, instead of having to actually read and do a little bit of research. So yep. this seems like kind of a backdoor way into getting my daughter to vote in the way that they want her to vote. Yep. And, I think, uh, I think God, you're that, right. That, that really kind Paul, of ticks me off. Yep. Paul, it, it should make you angry. In fact, just a week ago, we were talking Josh Marquis, my friend, who's a Democrat, but he's very much against this. The unions went out and they created a an online, in this case it was a web-based voter guide, and it looks like some, in, in other words, you can make a website so it looks just like the real deal. So it, it looks like a website that the state of Oregon had put up as an advisory to voters. And the same kind of thing happens. They're counting on people not being very sophisticated, saying, well, you know, this is the way I'm being told to vote. I should vote that way. If somebody wants to do that, even on radio, when you hear ads and you hear that annoying little thing at the end, oh, I'm Joe Kent and I, I approve this message, the reason that's legally required to be on there is that so everybody who's listening to the ad at the end of the ad knows who put this up there. And in some cases, they even have to identify who put the money behind it. In this case, I think you're right. It's a deliberate attempt to get your daughter to vote one way by making her get something that appears to be kind of official. And if you don't know the system, you say, I would look at it and go, oh, okay, that's easy. That's being sent out by an interest group, and they want to push you to vote a particular way. But for a lot of voters who don't spend all their time, just like I spend a fair amount of my time watching elections and the things around them, okay, I get it. But you're really taking advantage of people. In, in the same kind of way that somebody who sends you an email and says, I'm a Nigerian prince, and if you'll just send me your bank routing and account number, I'll send you $10 million. And you say, <laughs> who in the world would fall for that? Well, you know, Jay Inslee, among others, because he gave Nigerian prince a few hundred million dollars in unemployment money. But, hey, he's not very smart. It sounds like your daughter is smart. It's just she could be taken in and others could be taken in by this same nonsense, Paul. And I, I share your concern. Fixing it is kind of tough in one way. Because if I decide to put something on a piece of paper and mail it to everybody in Oregon or everybody in Washington, that's First Amendment free speech. Now, we've put some limits on how people can communicate when it comes to elections. But it's really tough to say, you know, well, you have to tell the truth. And I'll tell you why. Paul, here's a good illustration. Joe Biden comes out and says gas was $5 a gallon when he came into office. Now, that's a bald-faced lie, but nobody calls him out for it except people like me. If you come out and say... Uh, as Joe Biden, I, I have nothing to do with the fact that inflation is at a four-year, 40-year high. Well, is that true or is that a false statement? From Joe's point of view, from the point of view of Democrats, he didn't do it. Donald Trump did it or Vladimir Putin did it. So how do you decide which one can be declared too, too true or false? And by the way, that old Latin phrase, who will guard the guardians? Who gets to decide what's true and what's not? And I don't want it to be Mark Zuckerberg. You got the Lars Larson show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? 
The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. And oftentimes I arrive at Thursday and I don't have a good conspiracy theory, but I've got a great one today. And I think the best kind are the kind you can actually back up. Uh, I've got Mark Thielman with me, who's the former superintendent of the Alsea, Oregon School District, a one-time candidate for governor, and of course, all-around good guy. He's gone on to do other things to work on behalf of uh, the citizens and on behalf of solid elections. Uh, Mark, welcome back to the program. You're involved in a lawsuit brought by 10 Oregon counties suggesting that there should be more information available about the machines that are actually going to count the votes next Tuesday, right? That is correct. Now, I want to present something to you because the last week or so, the Democrats are in a panic. Everybody from the president on down on the left side of the aisle is saying there will be election deniers on Tuesday. Now, of course, they ignore the fact that uh, among the other election deniers on the left side of the aisle are Stacey Abrams and Hillary Clinton and just about everybody and their brother. Uh, and, and all of these folks denied the results of elections, and some of them are denying still. But now we've got officials, and I'm going to call him out by name. We've offered him the opportunity to come on the show, Dan Forrester, Washington County Elections Manager, who says there's a lot of concern for the public that tabulation systems might be vulnerable to hacking or that they might be programmed in such a way to deliver false results. Isn't that the essence uh, at the heart of your lawsuit? Yeah, so just, just so everyone listening understands that we had asked for early discovery in the lawsuit in which we don't allege fraud. We, we talk about all the anomalies, one of which you just relayed. These are called anomalies, and what they do is they're being perpetuated by the government. The government is giving assurances that are hollow, like you know, anyone in the public can watch the certification of the machine. That is just simply not true. But they want it to be true. And the problem is, is that when you give hollow assurances and you don't follow through with with real solid answers and factual answers and healthy relationships, trusting relationships, people go to places, they fill in the blank. So we had asked for early discovery. We wanted to do forensic imaging, which has been proven to, uh, and, it, and it's, it's believed to be persuasive among people who are concerned that their vote doesn't count. We uh, the the opposition, all 10 counties allied together and uh, opposed it. And then we communicated to with the uh, with the judge that we would be responding to their opposition on Thursday. We were told that that would be okay. Well, last night at 10 o'clock, we all got a surprise email that the judge is denying our motion for forensic imaging. And she's using all the canned things like these computers are safe. Um, Well, I don't know about you, Lars, but I know of no computer that that isn't um doesn't run on some kind of computer code written by somebody yep you know and um the thing well, is, but but worse than that mark AG, 
Mark, yeah. let me go to something, and I think you're about to make reference to it. When I saw that statement from Dan Forrester saying, oh, the public thinks these computers could be hacked, and that is misinformation. And I remembered that just a week ago, we were citing the response to your lawsuit from, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, the Oregon Attorney General, a Democrat named Ellen Rosenblum, <laughs> and the Secretary of State, another Democrat named Shamia Fagan, and I've been quoting this, from the response this is the response of two major league democrats oregon tabulators that refers to the machines we're talking about oregon tabulators are subject to wireless attacks and if the information yeah. is released to mark Thielman in his lawsuit and dan or Tom, uh, mr sipple and everybody else that, that it would cause irreparable harm to oregon's election system so you've got the elections manager of washington county where ironically enough your suit is being held heard even though it involves 10 counties mm -hmm. saying all these machines they're completely protected they are not hackable and you've got the oregon ag and secretary of state saying no they are already subject to wireless attacks do i have any of that wrong you have it 100 percent correct but here's what the public needs to know because the media wouldn't print it an expert witness um, Mark Cook was brought in in, in that Tim Sipple trial case hearing about releasing the information and making it public. And uh, the, the same players got up and talked about all the security of Washington County computer systems. And then that uh, witness, who's a cyber expert, held up his phone and said, I have hacked into your county system sitting here in this court of law. And here are all the devices connected to your wireless system. It shows you the complete hollowness. These people can do nothing but give assurance. They need to do more than that. And all we were asking is, how do we bring people together? How do we take people who really believe they're being disenfranchised and give them evidence one way or the other that, that their vote is being counted and being counted uh, legitimately and correctly uh, as per the law? And you can only do that with forensic imaging. Last point I really want to make, we cited in our case the Mesa County issue in Colorado which the Colorado AG um, was part of the opposition saying, yeah, well, we looked into that and it wasn't, it wasn't a nefarious code. It was the actions of one election official that created the data problem. Well, here's the thing, Lars, it's the left. They always want you to believe that the facts which count least count best. Well, the fact that counts best is both sides of that issue, whether you believe it was nefarious or you're on the side of the government saying it was just an incompetent election official that created the data problem, that problem was only discovered by forensic imaging. That's the most important point. Forensic imaging discovered the problem. Both sides of the issue agree on that. And what did they do just now in Oregon? They wouldn't even let us. We, we told them when we would be responding. They told us that was okay. And then, uh, you know, on the eve before, suddenly they decided to move forward and deny right. that. They're de okay. And they're, what they've done is disenfranchised every concerned election integrity-focused voter. And, Mark, I just want to make sure people understand, when you say a forensic fingerprint, if, if you and I were going to put a contract together and we had an agreement, and I said, eh, but I don't trust that Mark won't go out and alter this agreement after we both signed it. I mean, let's say I didn't trust you. I would snap a picture of the document with my phone. Yep. And that way, when you come back later and say, no, Lars promised to do all this stuff, I'd say, you know, I've got a picture that's date stamped, time stamped, uh, geo stamped as to where and when it was taken. And this shows the contract as signed. The one he's presenting to you mm -hmm. is false. That's I mean, even though computer code's a lot more complicated than a written contract, that's what you were asking to do. Take a snapshot of the computer, 
before the election count and then I assume go in and take another snapshot after and say, did anything get changed in the interim, right? Mm-hmm. And what they're saying instead is they're saying, well, we'll just audit. We'll just take some random ballots and run up the oh. machine and see if they're accurate. Yeah, yeah, None of that, that is forensic. It's not scientific. It's not admissible. It's, it's a lower standard. And, and it doesn't provide the alteration and verification that data is and, found. And by the way, Mark, can I point this? In, in Clackamas County, yeah. they said, why, we don't know why our ballots didn't work. We tested the machines. And then we found out later... Yeah. They didn't test them on the actual ballots that people got sent. They tested them on a, 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 care, a careful set of pre-prepared ballots that were prepared by Clackamas mm-hmm. County. You say, well, didn't Clackamas County make the ballots? No. They were printed by a company in Bend that screwed up the job, screwed up the barcodes. So they tested not on the ballots that people were going to be voting on, but on a, a, a test set. And they said it worked fine, mm-hmm. you know, in the lab. But when we got it out in the real world, it didn't quite work. That is Mark Thielman. He and others are behind a major lawsuit involving, well, a question. Can we take a look at what's inside the computer that counts the votes on Tuesday? And Washington County and the other counties say, no, you can't. Even though the attorney general admits the machines are hackable. You got the Lars Larson Show. Let's do it. Huge inflation. It's important to note that the American people are mostly fixated on inflation. There's no relief in sight. Gas prices. Everything you've been paying this much for a gallon of gas? In some parts of California, they're paying $4.50 a gallon. Multi-trillion dollar <laughs> government programs. The price tag for this bill, $1.75 trillion. And the recovery bill passed in March is close to $5 trillion. Big Brother has taken control and wants more from you every single day. This is Government Gone Wild. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get to your calls in just a moment, but uh, i got to tell you something. I mentioned this story the other day, and in fact, I mentioned it quite some time ago. When they first got their hands, the authorities got their hands on Joseph Dibby. And you have to understand who Joseph Dibby is. And then I saw Shiftwa, our friend Randy Pebble and company, they'd written about this as well. This ought to outrage people. And yet, even in the Pacific Northwest, where it's very environmentally friendly and sensible and all that, and you got lots and lots of activist groups. I mean, before 9-11, the FBI said the biggest threat to American domestic security was eco-terrorism groups. Well, Joseph Dibby was part of a couple of those eco-terrorist groups. And he just got sentenced for some rather major crimes that he committed. And I mentioned this the other day. This is a guy who was involved with, an, he's a convicted eco-terrorist. Um, the prosecutor had given sentencing recommendations for this guy because he is connected to more than $45 million in property damage in five different states. And after he committed these crimes, he went on the run. He ran to Syria. He ran to Russia. He was finally caught and then brought back from Cuba four years ago. Now, he spent some time in custody uh, awaiting his uh, disposition of his case, two and a half years in jail, while he was working on his plea bargain for these rather major environmental eco-terrorist crimes. And what did he get? Judge Ann Aiken, and I've met Judge Aiken, uh, I've talked to Ann Jan, she never agreed to come on the show. Uh, at one point, a couple of years ago, we were actually on the same airplane. Uh, she was on one side of the aisle, and I, was, I was on the other side, which pretty well describes our politics. And I was on the right side of the aisle, by the way, in case you were wondering. And I said, why don't you come on the show? 
She's sentenced this guy. She is as left-wing as she as she comes. Uh, she is the woman who cut off all the water to the Klamath Falls farmers about uh, about a de- about two decades ago, and then about a year later said, "Oh, I goofed on the science. Uh, we shouldn't have cut off the water. Sorry, we made all your fields dry up for a year." Klamath Falls farmers. She sentenced this eco terrorist to a thousand hours of community service and time served. That's it. This is a guy who's a major league eco-terrorist. 1997 Oregon slaughterhouse that was burned, a 2001 arson of the U.S. Department of Land Management property in California. was apparently involved in uh, the burning down of a, I think it was a Colorado ski resort. He then flees the country he's so concerned about getting uh, prosecuted, flees to friendly places like Syria and Russia and Cuba. He's finally captured. He spends two and a half years in jail, and then he was on house arrest in Seattle after that for a period of time. He was released house arrest in early uh, last year, 2021. Prosecutors wanted him sent to federal prison for seven years, and Judge Ann Aiken said, no, time served, 1,000 hours of community service, and I guess included in the deal, $1.3 million of restitution, uh, I won't hold my breath while we wait for that to get paid. In any case, that's crazy. Let's go to the former mayor of Willamina, Curtis Grubbs. Mayor Grubbs or former Mayor Grubbs, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you, Lars. Hey, I have a solution with this homeless issue, and it's it's very simple. Back in the days, the Depression time, we had poor farms and poor uh, poor places for folks to live. Now. During the the Trump administration, we have a bunch of illegal people coming across our border. What do we do? We put them up in tents. We sort it. We assess their situation. Right now, if we would, ju- we don't need tent cities. We need a a, a a general location to house them, meet their needs, and if they don't want to follow our rules, if they have mental issues, take, uh, send them to the, to, the, to the mental health institution here in Salem, which they're not running right. Send them to jail if they're if they're using drugs and they and they're and they have con- convicted there. You know this is a simple solution. You know rats don't congregate into an area unless there's food. We're making it too damn too doggone simple for folks to be in in an area. I know in McKinville at one point uh, twenty years ago we didn't have a problem with homeless people. All of a sudden there was one. They started feeding people coming in one day a week. All of a sudden it was two, three, four. Now look. But hold on, Mayor, Mayor, without the filibuster, you talk about meeting their needs. You're talking about doing the very thing that draws the rats to the barn, aren't you? Not not necessarily. You know, it's just putting giving a a place for them to stay. And if why? No, hold on. Number one. Number one. Why is it the taxpayer's job to provide them with free meals and a free place to live? That's number one. Number two. Can can you force them? to take that circumstance, and the answer is you cannot. You have no legal authority to confine them to a camp. I'm not feeling sorry for them. I'm just saying you have no legal way to say this is the only place you can be. When they say, I'm leaving, and I'm going to go set my tent up somewhere else, the only thing you can do is try to enforce the law. And frankly, I think most of the cities, the bigger cities especially, have been gutless about enforcing the law. So Ted Wheeler can talk all day long about 500-person tent encampments, but he can't make the people stay there, nor can he make them be drug-free, nor can he force them into treatment. And when you say, we'll send them to, to the uh, mental institution, the problem is 
unless they are immediately a danger to themselves or others, there is no legal authority for the police or anybody else to confine them to a mental institution. So your your idea falls apart. All, you, all you're talking about doing is taking about a bunch of mostly drug-addicted people, some are mentally ill, but mostly are drug-addicted, saying, we're going to give you a free place to stay and free food and free medical care, and you can keep on taking your drugs. It doesn't get at the heart of the problem, does it? No, and maybe I'm being a little soft that way, but the whole thing yeah. is with the poor farms. You you made the folks, they had a choice. They were there if they wanted to follow the rules, and they had to work. You know, we just basically need to enforce the rules on the on the books. Except, except the other side of that has to be, and you can't camp anywhere else. And you tell exactly. me, after, after watching for two decades, and especially in the last dozen years, in the city of Portland, city of Seattle, the city officials have no backbone to actually enforce the rules. So when the homeless folks who said, yeah, your tent encampment was fine, I don't like it, I don't like being in those circumstances, I'm going to move somewhere else, do you think you've got politicians in office right now who will say to the cops, go down, roust them out, tell them to leave, they cannot camp there? I don't believe they are. Do you believe no, they are? We, we, we do not. We have politicians on uh, Christine Grayson just on the advertisement saying, I'm going to solve the issue. They, they don't have guts enough to enforce the rules that we have. But well, I'm going to hold Grayson's feet to the fire if she doesn't. I mean, because she said she will enforce Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls. I know a lot of you have been waiting a while. We'll get to you at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You probably heard that North Korea has launched an intercontinental ballistic missile above its eastern waters. That happened yes, it happened today, actually, their time. And, of course, the U.S. and its allies said, you can't be doing this. It triggered alarms in Japan. It set off the country's emergency alert system. After two short-range ballistic missiles were launched, uh, you can only imagine how the United States would respond if an uh, antithetical or antagonistic foreign power decided to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles and overfly any part of the United States. So I thought I'd get Kelly Vlahos on, who's senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and editorial director of Responsible Statecraft. Kelly, welcome back to the program. Oh, great to be here, Lars. So what do we do about this problem that the little crazy man in North Korea seems to get uh, be doing crazier and crazier things lately and, and maybe even purposely? He knows we're heading up to a major election and some major choices. You're right. You know, I, we've had a couple of stories uh, about this on responsible statecraft. Clearly, the Biden strategy, if there is one for North Korea, isn't working and deterrence isn't working. You know, we've had um, we've had a destroyer, we've had a missile cruiser and an uh, aircraft carrier. They're all right now engaging in drills with Japan and South Korea, anti-submarine drills. I mean, this is part of why uh, Kim Jong-un says he's angry is because they're doing these drills for the first time since 2017. But the fact that where they are doing them has not stopped him from upping the ante and continuing to launch these missiles. And they seem to be getting closer and closer and closer to our allies' territory. So, I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but I mean, the last time that things were tamped down is when Donald Trump actually got out 
of Washington and went over there to talk to Kim Jong-un. Now, now, now come on, he, Kelly, why, why do you no, hate but, to say that? Why, why do you hate? Because well, he, he, look, I know he didn't get the whole solution, but he was a bit of a game changer in that we'd sent, what, yeah. three decades of watching next to nothing happen, lots of six-party talks and you know discussions of the shape of the conference table and all kinds of other crazy stuff mm-hmm, that didn't mm-hmm. get anywhere. Trump actually moved the needle to some extent. And now what? We've given all that up and we've gone back to, well, we'll just do it the way we've always done it, which is nothing. Well, the reason I say I hate to say it is because I think some people expect you know, a more aggressive, muscular, military response to Kim Jong-un. And what I'm saying is I agree entirely with you, Lars, that I think that him getting out of Washington and going and talking and starting a dialogue was actually the last time we saw um, some amount of, um, I don't want to say peace, but that the tensions had gotten down to a level low enough or there, there was an ability to talk and we don't have that right now. And I don't know what the Biden administration is thinking, what they're doing. They're completely distracted right now. But you know what? They can come and walk at the same time. And they have people in the State Department that are specifically devoted to North Korea, people in the Pentagon devoted. You know, they have the North Korea portfolio. What are we doing? We don't know. But, you know, sending more ships out and doing more military drills isn't cutting it, apparently. Well, and and Kelly, I'd point this out. Do you see very much uh, diplomacy being done to try to resolve Ukraine right now out of the Biden administration? No. No. Uh, (laughs) Let's see. Where are we engaging in? Oh, I remember we are engaging in diplomacy with Iran, which threatens on a weekly basis to destroy Israel and the United States. We're negotiating with them because Joe wants a deal. And who are interlocutors? Oh, that would be the Russians. Well, I thought we were on the outs with the Russians. Well, no, only when it comes to Ukraine. We want them to help craft a deal in Iran that gets Joe some kind of deal that gives the mad mullahs a bomb fairly soon. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, the Russians will make bank on the thing, tens of billions of dollars. It, this just sounds like a, an administration. And what was it Bob Gates said about Joe Biden, that he's got every single major foreign policy position in his entire history wrong? <laughs> And, and then, of course, and then, of course, Barack Obama said, never underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. I can't use the actual word Obama used because the FCC would find me. These guys have absolutely no clue when it comes to foreign policy. But I spent four years listening to idiots on the left say Donald Trump knows nothing about foreign policy. I'll tell you what, compared to Joe Biden, he, se- he, he seems absolutely brilliant. Well, I mean, do you remember when Joe Biden came to Washington, everybody said, oh, the adults are in the room now. We are going to, like, fix all the all the broken stuff from when Trump was here. And we're going to reaffirm all of our relationships with the rest of the world and restore the international rules based order. I mean, come on. If these are the adults in the room, trouble, because we're well, looking at we're looking at possible two front, maybe three front war. Yeah. Russia, China, and North Korea. Yep, all three yeah. at once. And, and, oh, or 2023 and, and, people coming. 
And we burned down our strategic petroleum reserve, which means a two or three front war would put pressure on our military because we don't have the fuel. We're giving away the bombs and bullets to Ukraine. Uh, you know, we're not rest- But we have a very woke military. Maybe North Korea will be uh, inspired uh, by or fearful even of, uh, of transgender soldiers uh, and service members uh, coming at him. I don't, do you think that'll work? I don't know, but I'd like to pick up on your last point of us giving everything away, and that's a serious problem. You know, we are, we're down to the point now where we are promising Ukraine things that we do not have anymore, and it's going to take months, if not years, to get some of the stuff that we're promising over to them because we've been giving it all away. So I agree with you. There is a reckoning coming here, and nobody seems to be paying attention except for some Republicans in, you know, on the Hill today you know, who are starting to push back on the, what Kevin McCarthy called the blank check. Now, what will happen after the election? I don't know. You know, but I think there needs to be some checks and balances on what's going on here. Well, I guess the bad guys, and there are bad guys in the world, have to at least believe that we will do something if they do other things. So when North Korea says, don't hold your drills, and if you do, we're going to be launching missiles over Japan and scaring everybody half to death, um, you know, they're testing us and, and giving that up and saying, okay, we'll stop the drills. Well, then North Korea is in the driver's seat at that point. And you've got a Joe Biden who, you know, he, he promised to vilify the Saudis until he needed their oil to try to win an election. So it's like everybody in the world is watching this guy screw everything up and then wondering, should we fear what he's going to tell us he might do? I don't think so. I think I think he's communicated loud and long that, that you have no reason to fear this particular American president. Right. And as you remember, he did um, roll back those exercises in 2017, but it was paired with his insistence that they talk in person and they start negotiating something. Now we lament that it never was followed through and, you know, we didn't have that, that whole story there. But the fact is he didn't just say, okay, we'll stop all his military drills, whatever you say, Kim Jong-un. It was more like, okay, we'll pair this back, but then we have a few demands or we have a few things that we would like. And one of those is sitting down at the table and talking. Now, you know, whether that's about denuclearization or sanctions or whatever, but it's a delicate dance. And people, you know, are supposed to be, have the ability in Washington, supposedly the, the adults in the room, to do that kind of diplomacy. And it's just not happening. 30,000 people at the State Department, and you've just raised the Q issue, Kelly, quid pro quo. But those are the things that get American presidents impeached by insisting on quid pro quos. Quid pro Joe, he just wants the quid pro from Beijing. That's Kelly Vlahos, who's senior advisor of the Quincy Institute, editorial director at Responsible Statecraft. This is the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls, especially on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. Our Twitter poll today, do you trust the election counting systems used in Northwest elections? I cite two pieces of data. Dan Forrester, Washington County Elections Manager, he's been invited to come on the show. He says there's a lot of concern that tabulation systems, this is counting vote machines, might be vulnerable to hacking. That is misinformation, he says. And then I would cite the statement of the Oregon Attorney General, also a Democrat, and the Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, another Democrat, 
who said Oregon tabulators are subject to wireless attacks. And if the public is allowed to look at how those tabulators run, it would cause irreparable harm to Oregon's election system. Now, the two can't both be true. I'd love to ask Dan Forrester for an explanation of that. Why do the Secretary of State and the Attorney General both say that your systems are hackable right now? And they said it in court in a formal filing before a judge in Washington County. And yet Dan Forrester of Washington County says, no, 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 perish the thought. Those tabulation systems, all that stuff about hacking, that's misinformation. Mr. Forrester, I'd love to have you explain it. I'd let you do it for my entire audience if you are so inclined. To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. And this segment is brought to you by NickShivers.com. For an instant offer to sell your home immediately, no showing, no hassles, you pick the closing date, NickShivers.com for details. Let's go first to Carrie in Eugene in Lane County, listening on the Radio Northwest Network and KPNW. Carrie, welcome to the program. What's on your mind today? Hi, thanks. Uh, this is just a, a starting point. So I was thinking... Um, I started golfing, and you have to have a gin number, so everything's a even playing field. So yep. this goes to, um, like, the guys and the girls in sports. I'm totally against it, number one. But if we're going to do it, and this could only be related to, like, swimming or track, but it's a starting point. So if guys want to play with the girls, fine. But they have to start off with, say you run the 100-yard dash in eight seconds. I don't know. But the guys have to add five seconds onto their time <laughs> to start even. No, it's an interesting idea, Carrie. Like golf, I don't golf, but I know that you have a handicap. So you say, you know, this is my handicap. I, I get how that system works. The problem with it is that the political forces behind trans say you have to treat these people as women. And the minute you say, well, this woman, in quote marks, who used to be a biological man, has a handicap. But that woman was born a woman, so she doesn't have a handicap. I guarantee you, Carrie, you'll be in court so fast it'll make your head spin. And you'll lose. Because it would be like anything else. If, if somebody said, we're going to have uh, a rule for employees, and uh, this rule applies to all female employees except it doesn't apply to this group of female employees because they used to be men that that lawsuit would be settled would be done you'd walk into the lawyer's office and they say you're going to lose you're we're going to tell you right now you're going to lose because you can't if you've agreed to treat them as women you can't create two classes of women it wouldn't be legal uh and yet at the same time the problem isn't whether or not you give them a handicap or how big the handicap is it's should we be treating biological men as women and allowing them to compete against other women? Should we? Right. No. I I said I'm totally against that. I think it's it's silly. We all know it's political, and it's it's just really sad. It's, well, it's just very. Sad. I, I'm, I'm going to ask Dusty. Can you pull up those sound bites we ran at the beginning of the show? And this was in this uh, debate or town hall between Joe Kent and Marie Glusenkamp Perez, who's the Democrat. And she's the one who was asked a straightforward question. Should biological men be allowed to compete against women? And it was the trans issue. And she literally couldn't answer the question. Oh, it's a nuanced question. You know, it's not a yes or no. Well, it really is. It, it, let's go ahead and play the first soundbite because you'll listen to her being asked a straightforward question and as a Democrat being unable to come up with a straightforward answer. Listen. Do you support biological males? 
competing in biological female sports? Um, I, I think that is the. It is. It's complicated. It depends. When do they transition? What are their hormone levels? I mean, when you when you really look at um, athletes have all different natural hormone levels. So there's the, it is a nuanced question. Now, Carrie, that's where. If you've decided you're in favor of something or against something, you're certainly entitled. I'm in favor of things and against things, right? But if somebody says, okay, so if you're in favor of that, are you in favor of biological males competing as females? Even Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, who's about as far to the left as you can find a candidate, she's going to lose on Tuesday to Joe Kent. But having said that, if you believe in that, then say, yes, biological men should be able to go in and clean up in women's sports. Or no, they should not. But she realizes one answer would uh, be sensible, but it would get her in big trouble with her left-wing allies because they'd say, you're not supporting trans athletes? No. Well, that would, that would cost her enormously. So she can't say yes, can't say no. So she has to say, oh, it's more complicated. Do you think it's more complicated than that? No. We all know that that, well, that's not true. No, it's, it's either yes or no. And so why don't we just do this? which I guess the law is going to say we can't do this, but get a test, a blood test, whatever it takes. You're either XY or XX or, you know, just just go by that with your two chromosomes, and that's where you go. Yep. I'll tell you what, Carrie, I'm full. I'm, full. I'm for it. And by the way, Marie Glusenkamp is right. One of the best runners in the world came out of Eugene. Her name was Mary Decker. She's still alive. I think she lives on the East Coast. One of the best runners in the world, but she had too much natural testosterone. She got zapped for that. That was wrong, and this is wrong. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It is Conspiracy Theory Thursday, and it's the Radio Northwest Network serving the Pacific Northwest states for the last 22 and a half years, and we hope delivering on a daily basis honestly provocative talk. And if you want to jump into the conversation, we'll get to calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. Today's question do you trust the election counting systems used in the Northwest? I've given the specific example that even the Attorney General of Oregon and the Secretary of State say, quote, Oregon tabulators, that's what they call the computers that count the ballots, are subject to wireless attacks and uh, that if more information about them is released to citizens, it would cause irreparable harm to the election system. So to all the people who say they're election deniers, I guess you have to count Ellen Rosenblum, the attorney general, and Shamia Fagan, the, uh, uh, the secretary of state, as election deniers. They say the uh, machines are hackable, while everybody else in their party is denying that they are. Now, I want to ask Senator John Brown uh, about something else, and that has to do with Jay Inslee's emergency powers. He provides a great bad example in that on Monday of this week, on Halloween, he literally finally gave up his emergency powers after just about two weeks short of a thousand days. Senator, welcome back to the program. 
Farge, thanks for having me. Should the state legislature, both Democrats and Republicans, put some new constraints on the emergency powers of governors? Uh, absolutely. You know, this, this ending of the emergency was long overdue. The average person ended it some time ago. 975 days is way too long. And, and we need to do something about reforming our statute. It's out of date. We've learned a lot over the last three years. We can make it better. And, and we need it to, do, to rebuild trust. And frankly, in state government, we have big issues with affordability, with public safety, with giving our kids the education they deserve. If we're going to get after those, we got to rebuild the trust in state government. That starts with a bipartisan effort to to reform emergency powers statute in the state of Washington. Now, tell me this. Do you have any support for that idea from the other side of the aisle, from the Democrat Party in Olympia? So we've had uh, a, a couple members in the Senate, at least, a couple members of the other party have signed on us routinely on, on reasonable reform to, buy, to the emergency powers. Uh, I don't know yet. I mean, we'll see whether we have 25 and whether, uh, you know, what happens to, to the makeup of the legislature after next week's election. Uh, but I'm hopeful we come back with a you know, wiser uh, legislature that's willing to do uh, common sense reform to this statute. Now, tell me this, Senator. Uh, you know that I'm always going to throw in my ideas. But what's your idea for limiting the emergency powers of a governor? Because it may be just what I'm thinking of, too. But tell, tell me what you're proposing or what, what you would propose that you think you could get bipartisan support for. So I think there's a lot of things that would, would improve where we're at. For me, the key things are you have to differentiate between a short-term emergency, something that clearly requires the action, the governor and executive power, you know, his executive capacity to make quick action to save lives or prevent damage. That makes sense. But anything, in my mind, over 30 days, a longer-term emergency uh, needs to involve the legislature. We've shown in our state and across the country that legislatures can meet uh, remotely, virtually, and take action and represent the people they, they uh, were elected by. So I think one thing is there's got to be a differentiate between a differentiation between a short-term emergency and a long-term emergency. And then the other thing I, I think you got to do and is make sure the legislatures have to be involved. They don't get a choice as they have right now just to give it a pass and let the governor do whatever he wants. Make sure they are not only representing the people who elected them, but they can be held accountable if they don't. Oh, I think that's a great idea. Let me ask you something. I know Oregon has what's called an emergency board, and they can they can act quickly on something in the legislature. Does Washington State have a similar structure? Well, it gets a little bit complicated. We have it depends on the type of proclamation we allow for for certain types of proclamation. After 30 days, they have to be approved by the legislature or by the four caucus leaders. Uh, and that is somewhat helpful. The, the challenge is it only applies uh, to certain proclamations that are, are changing state law. The other ones where the governor is prohibiting things, uh, the, the types of proclamations that were used to shut down our, our society, essentially, for, for months at a time, those are not reviewable by anybody uh, to hold the governor accountable. What we need to do is, is not only allow which technically, you know, constitutionally, the legislature could call itself into a session, override the governor if they wanted to, but they're not, the majorities aren't going to do that. We need to make the, them responsible for weighing in. They don't get a choice. They have to weigh in if these proclamations are going to go on beyond 30 days, and they have to apply to all proclamations, not just some of them. Uh, see, I agree with that, because imagine if you said, 
Uh, on any conventional emergency, so say we get hit with a big uh, Cascadia subduction earthquake that the, the region is due for, you know, who knows, uh, tomorrow, uh, 10 years from now, uh, 500 years from now, uh, and it happens, you say, okay, the, emergen- the governor can have almost unlimited emergency powers for 30 days, but at 30 days at most, he's got to go back to say the, you know, at least the caucus leaders, so representing both Republicans and Democrats, or he's got to go back to the full legislature and say, I still need powers, and say you could do two extensions of 30 days each. So the total maximum is going to be 90, because after 90 days, either the legislature ought to be able to get back involved fully and the governor get out of his emergency powers or something extraordinary will have had to happen. Would that be a reasonable set of limitations? 30 days without question, but at the end of the 30 days, it ends unless the legislature and its major parties agree. So if you have the four caucus leaders get together and the Democrats both vote yes to give Jay whatever he wants and the Republicans vote no, it's a 2-2 vote, that's a no. And, 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 if, and, and if there is a need, you know, and there might be a circumstance where a governor would need emergency powers beyond 30 days, then I would imagine you'd get agreement from both sides of the aisle. That doesn't seem to be an unreasonable way to limit it, does it? Uh, no, no, it doesn't to me. I think that's you know, one of many ways you can get at this exact problem that, that gets the people's representatives in charge of making those decisions after a certain period of time. And we've shown, uh, you know, repeatedly over the last uh, couple of years, three, almost three years, that we can do this remotely. We can do it effectively. That that, that we if you if it goes on for a period of time, that absolutely that that is reasonable. And and don't give. I mean, people get upset with our governor. Certainly, I do get upset with our governor. Uh, but in this case, I actually blame the legislative majorities as much or more than the governor because they they they're the ones that have sat on their hands and allowed the governor to run the state without proper legislative oversight. I and see. I agree with you, Senator. And honestly. I think your Democrat colleagues said, yeah, we're happy to let Jay do it because Jay gets the blame. Whereas if they weighed in and said, hey, you've got to include the people's representatives, then they have to own part of what gets done. I think they thought it was politically convenient to say, yeah, go ahead, let Jay run the state under emergency orders for almost two full years. And that way we don't have to take the blame. We don't have to take the responsibility. If that's your attitude, you have no business being a state lawmaker. That is Senator John Brown. Uh, Senator, it's always a pleasure. We'll be back in a moment. Got a few things to say about Joe Biden, who's now declared that delayed election results are now the norm. And I've got some funny audio to play for you as well about a Starbucks worker who is working really hard, and he thinks he's working too hard. We'll get to that next on The Lars Larson Show. To speak the impeachable speech, to say the impeachable words, to cross the line into sedition, Joe's speech was one for the birds, this was his quest, not heal but divide. Trash mega, Joe flat out lied. His speech was a joke designed to incite. Hey, bring it on, Joe. Gotta know we're prepared for the fight. That is, that is our great parody guy, Jim Gossett, talking about Joe Biden's speech 
this week in which you can tell the desperation, you can smell the desperation of the Democrat Party. They know they're going to lose big time in Tuesday's election, and they're throwing everything and the kitchen sink out there to see what they can get done. So what he's talking about is uh, Joe Biden gave a speech in which he declared that Republicans are a threat to democracy. Well, ignoring the fact that America is not a democracy, it is a representative form of government, a repu- a federal republic. It's not a democracy. We haven't been run as a democracy, and we should not be run as a democracy. Democracies tend to fall apart, as one famous philosopher put it, when the people realize that they can vote themselves benefits from the public treasury. Well, then the whole game is over at that point. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get to your phone calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And if you don't like Twitter, even with Elon Musk in charge, go to our website at LarsLarson.com. The vote counts the same. And naysayers go to the head of the list. And welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. Now, Joe Biden also wants you to believe that somehow uh, the polls are going to close on Tuesday, but we're not going to get a result on Tuesday. And why is that? Why is he trying to make it the new norm that in America we can have an election and we won't get the results for days, maybe even for weeks? Take a listen to what Joe Biden says is going to happen after the polls close. We know that more and more ballots are cast in early voting or by mail in America. And we know that many states don't start counting those ballots until after the polls close on November 8th. That means in some cases we won't know the winner of the election for a few days. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to work? Now, consider what he's saying, though, logically. On most poll elections where you'd go to the polls and cast a ballot, all of those ballots got counted that night, and they didn't start counting them till the polls closed, usually depending on where you are, at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock at night. But all it is is a stack of ballots, stacks and stacks of ballots that have to be fed through tabulating machines. Now, when there were poll votes only and very few absentee votes or vote-by-mail votes, they got it all done by early in the evening. And then about 2020, things began to change. And Joe wants to now make it the new norm that they can wait until days or weeks after an election to say, we've finally massaged the ballots and massaged the numbers enough that we finally have figured out the result. That is an opportunity for cheating. The Democrats realize the only way they can win is by cheating. I wanted to share another piece of audio with you, and this is a very serious one. Uh, This is so sad, but I'm glad to say that the young lady in this call that was made to 911 on the day of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, uh, lived through the incident. But listen to what she said to the 911 operator as that evil man was shooting people in that classroom in Uvalde, Texas. Take a listen. Yes, I, I'm aware. I was talking to you earlier. You're still there in your room? You're still in room 112? No. Okay, you stay on the line with me. Do not disconnect. Can you tell the police to come to my room? I already told them to go to the room. We're trying to get someone to you. You hear anyone come in, but they're not supposed to be. They don't say that they're police. Y'all pretend that you are asleep, okay? Now, just pretend that you're asleep. Thank God she survived what happened. 
But when the 911 dispatcher said, we're getting police to your room, they were not. The police were standing out in the hallway in that case. They were not doing their job. And in fact, a lot of them, we now know from body cam videos, we're talking about, I'm not going in there and getting shot. I'm not going in there and getting shot. I don't expect any cop to volunteer to get shot. But when you sign up for the job, you understand, we famously say that firefighters run in the direction of the fire or the explosion, that police run to the sound of gunfire, not away from it. It is really sad that a 911 operator had to lie to that child and say, we've got police on the way, when in fact the police in many cases were standing just a few feet or a few yards away, and she was being told help's on the way, and help took a long, long time that day. I want to turn to something else. John Fetterman running for the Senate in the great state of Pennsylvania. And the video and audio we've pulled up from him from years gone by, today he's trying to say, I'm not in favor of letting everybody out of jail, even though he said he is. I'm not in favor of uh, decriminalizing certain things. I want you to listen to this. This was from just a couple of years ago as he talked about how well things would work if we would just effectively legalize hard drugs. Take a listen. I applaud Oregon for the step they took this last election, you know, decriminalizing small amounts of drugs um, and realizing that you can't you can't arrest your way out of addiction. And if you criminalize addiction, you have what we have. And that is, you know, one of the core tenets of mass incarceration. Yeah, the problem with Fetterman's argument, he doesn't know the subject. Almost nobody went to jail or prison, either the federal level or the state level, for small amounts of drugs. They usually got the threat of a felony conviction and were offered the opportunity of treatment, and 90% plus took the opportunity to get treatment, to get off the drugs, and almost nobody went to prison unless they were involved in hardcore drug dealing. And then there's KJP, Karine Jean-Pierre, the young lady who unfortunately has the job of trying to straighten out what Joe Biden has to say every day and usually correct the president. No, he didn't really mean to say that. Take a listen to this. Unfortunately, we have seen mega, MAGA Republican officials who don't believe in the rule of law. They refuse to accept the results of free and fair elections, and they fan the flames of political violence through what they praise and what they refuse to condemn. Hold on. They don't believe in the rule of law. What were the Democrat mayors of major American cities doing during about a year's worth of riots and looting and arson and murders? They were refusing to condemn. In fact, we have a vice president now who actually raised money to get people out of jail. Let me skip to the Starbucks sniveler. This is somebody working at Starbucks, and it's just, I mean, its I haven't brought it up before, but this guy was talking about how hard he has to work and how much they need a union at Starbucks and why they're making him work too hard, and he's being misgendered. Listen to that. I look a full-time student. I get scheduled for 25 hours a week, and on a weekend, they schedule me the entire day, open to close. I'm on the schedule for eight and a half hours, both Saturday and Sunday. I'm like three and a half hours into my shift there's so many customers and we have four people on the floor all day <laughs> and then people are yelling at me because they don't have their orders ready and they don't know what to do <laughs> and a customer was misgendering me today like really badly i didn't have their order ready and so they were just like totally talking to each other and they're like she's clearly incompetent i have a full mustache and beard unbelievable you got the lars larson show 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Get back to your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers always to the head of the line. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network, proudly serving the Northwest states with honestly provocative talk for the last 22 and a half years. I hope that all of you have seen or immediately plan to see the documentary called 2000 Mules, created by our friend Dinesh D'Souza, with a lot of help from a couple of people going to jail now uh, from uh, True the Vote, Catherine Engelbrecht and her partner. Uh, Dinesh has now turned a book out of all of this, and he joins me now. Dinesh, welcome back. Hey, Lars, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listen, this thing should be talked about more, and I guess my only disappointment, having watched the documentary not once but twice, is the fact that you and True the Vote came up with rock-solid proof that there was fraud going on in the 2020 election. You may not have called it that, but I'll call it that, because we had people harvesting ballots, sometimes in places where they're still legally allowed to do that, sometimes in places where it's not legally allowed, and all of that absolute truth uh, and hard, rock-hard information didn't turn into indictments. And, I, I, you know, I, I want people to take a look at the book you've produced. I want them to see the movie if they haven't already. But is there a way of explaining how the authorities are, are able to just ignore this and say we're not going to go after people for violations of elections laws in uh, in November of 2020? Yeah, I think, Lars, that the main uh, culprit is the fact that the research for 2000 Mules focused on heavily Democratic urban areas, not whole states, but rather the Atlanta area, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia. So typically here you have Democratic sheriffs, Democratic attorneys general, Democratic secretaries of state. Now, there were a couple of exceptions to that. The attorney general Bernovich in Arizona, the secretary of state Raffensperger in Georgia. But somehow, across the board, there was no real appetite by law enforcement or even by the relevant officials to say, let's get to the bottom of this. It would not have been hard for them to do. Now, of course, the left came screaming, this, is, this has been debunked and so on. But the debunking was really mostly just bogus. There were people who made interpretations of things we said that don't make sense if you actually see the movie. And this was true of the fact checks from NPR, from AP, and so on. And also the other thing that strikes me as interesting is the fact that the Republican establishment, I found, is scared of this movie. Uh, Debbie, my wife, and I are pretty close to a bunch of congressmen and senators who are like, I, I haven't really seen the movie yet. I'm, you know, I'm, I plan to. I just haven't done it yet. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, you're, you're the victims of this kind of a scheme. Why wouldn't you be all over this? If I was Michael Moore and I made this film in 2016 about how Trump stole the election and how all these mules stopped by right organizations like the Heritage Foundation, the NRA, mega churches. They were collecting backpacks of ballots, going to these mail-in drop boxes. Can you imagine what the Democrats would do with this? So there's just a huge psychological chasm between the parties that is very interesting to behold. Well, in fact, I'm talking to Dinesh D'Souza, most recently the creator of a new book based on the documentary 2000 Mules. They thought we'd never find out they were wrong. One of the things, and you know, I used to make documentaries for a living, and I, I watch that you provided a, a a hint of that, and it almost, you know, if this was, if yours was a fictional film, I'd have said that's where they're setting up the origins for the next for the sequel. 
because you had the guy paid by the Republican Party to go out and watch drop boxes. I believe it was during the special election that followed in January uh, of last year. And uh, and he went out and he shot the video and he said he had people on on camera who were dropping huge amounts of ballots into the ballot drop boxes. And you asked him, well, what'd you do with it? And he said, I delivered it to the people who paid me, the RNC. And what did they do with it? And, and as you point out, nothing. Because the uniparty, that, that is the Democrats and Republicans kind of sharing power back and forth, but never letting anybody from the outside in, they looked at it and said, no, there's as much risk in, in this for us as there is for the other side, so we'll bury it. Am I wrong in, the, in drawing that conclusion? I don't, I don't think you are. I mean, I think it could be a combination of Republican fear. I mean, we know that there are Republicans who may not be corrupt, but what they, they don't want to be called election deniers. Well, they don't want to be called climate deniers or COVID deniers. Their natural move is to hide under their desk, to go into the fetal position. They're just terrified of the media. And the net effect is that the media has them on a leash where they're allowed some freedom of movement, but the movement is just within the, the sort of radius of what the leash will allow. The, you know, it's to me shocking that that you have this video surveillance that was taken by the states themselves. And guess what? For over a year, no one looked at it. So when Catherine and Greg came to our house and were showing us this video, I was like, no one in the country has seen this. Uh, And yet, this is not some video surreptitiously obtained. It's official video. No one can question its authenticity. The states already have it, and yet we're showing it in this movie to the country for the first time. So what I do with the book, Lars, is I, I just systematize all this evidence. I can lay it out with greater depth, more references, more footnotes. I can answer the critics and sort of debunk the debunkers. And then I can also lay out at the end of the book sort of what needs to be done. That doesn't really ever work in a movie. You know, it's kind of like if you watch the Shawshank Redemption, you can't end the movie with like, here's a panel discussion on prison reform at Shawshank. You know, it spoils the movie. But it works in a book. Well, it does. And and I guess I told you one of my big disappointments was... I wanted you to name the NGOs, you know, these these or nonprofits where these people were picking up the ballots. And I know there may have been some legal implications to that. I wanted you to do that. I wanted you to go to some of the uh, legal authorities, the whether it's the sheriff, the police chief, the attorney general, the secretary of state, and confront them with the evidence and say, okay, what do you say? Are you going to act on this? And then show their either reluctance or their their uh, you know their assertion that they will do something about it. And, and I almost thought, well, maybe that'll be in the sequel. But would that be a way to get at forcing these authorities to actually act on the information? People broke the law in your documentary, right? Yes, absolutely. The good news is that there has now been a national consortium of sheriffs that's been established. Now, some of these sheriffs are saying, hey, listen, we would love to go talk to the mules. We'll be even happy to arrest them. But the geo-tracking wasn't done in our jurisdiction. And so, uh, but there is a much greater awareness among the law enforcement community and, frankly, among the general public. You might have read, Lars, there are patriots in Arizona who, like, go, you know, they go have, like, a tailgate party outside the drop boxes just to see if there's any shenanigans or any mules show up. And the Biden administration is acting like this is some grave violation and some kind of voter suppression, which it isn't, as long as you're harmlessly watching. Don't interfere with voters. I mean, don't go cleaning your shotgun outside a a mail-in drop box. But as long as you're just observing, that's completely within the law. Well, and see, I think they should be, and I've seen where they've gone after some of these people saying, 
a group of patriots can't go watch a ballot drop box from a distance and observe what going, goes on. For anybody who's a legitimate voter, they're not going to be afraid of that. They're going to say, I'm, I'm here to drop off my ballot. On the other hand, somebody showing up with a backpack full of ballots, as we saw in 2000 Mules, uh, they're going to say, I'm not too crazy about being observed by these witnesses. People don't like to do their crimes in front of a camera or in front of witnesses. But Dinesh, I'm glad to see that you're still pursuing it. Congratulations on turning it into a book. As you said, there are some things you can do with a book that you can't do with a movie. That is Dinesh D'Souza, host of the Dinesh D'Souza podcast. He created the 2000 Mules documentary and now the book called 2000 Mules. They thought we'd never find out and they were wrong. Dinesh, it's always a pleasure. I'll get to your phone calls in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. We'll go to naysayers first, of course, always. We've done that for more than 25 years. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you'll find that at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Glad to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network. We'll get to your phone calls and other issues of the day coming up next. You're listening to the Radio Northwest News. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to be with you. It's uh, Radio Northwest Network, and it is Conspiracy Theory Thursday. I got some great emails. That uh, Starbucks crybaby, this is the young man who is working at Starbucks, and he did about eight minutes, and he's the one who decided to take a video of himself and then post it online complaining about how many hours he has to work every week, how hard it is to work, You're slinging coffee, buddy. You're not digging a ditch somewhere. You're not hauling gravel. You're not driving a long-haul truck. Uh, You're not doing hard physical work. You're pouring coffee, for God's sake. And it's interesting to watch the entire eight minutes. He complains about being misgendered. He complains about how hard he has to work. He's going to school full-time, and he's working 25, 25 hours a week, and then complains about getting scheduled for hours on the weekend. I'll tell you what, I loved getting scheduled for extra hours. When I was his age, I was working in radio. I have always worked at least two jobs my entire life. There were times in my life when I worked four jobs. Some of them were to advance my career in radio and television. Some of them were to make money to pay the bills. I remember one weekend, uh, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, a long time ago, I was either 18 or 19, And I was working at a radio station, and they said, uh, listen, uh, the pay, by the way, was $3.50 an hour back then. Big bucks, because that was the minimum wage, $3.50 an hour. And they said, hey, we've got all these people who want to take off for Thanksgiving. Can you fill some shifts? I said, I'll fill all the shifts you give me. So there were three and a half days where I worked 18 hours because I worked from early in the morning to late at night at the radio station, and I thought I'm making but I'm making bank right now because I'm making three fifty an hour. I'm getting eighteen hours. A- I was making almost seventy dollars every single one of those three days, and then the next day I did a half day. And what was really comical was because it was Thanksgiving uh, on Thursday, everybody well not everybody a number of people felt sorry for me. So I was sitting there. I'd packed a lunch because I knew I'd be there for eighteen hours. And uh, all of a sudden, I, I get note. I get a little the the the, the uh, announcement. The ringer rings, and I thought, "Oh, somebody's come to the radio station on Thanksgiving Day." Okay, who was it? It was the general manager and his daughter, and they had brought me Thanksgiving dinner. I thought, "Well, that was very nice." I thanked them. I sat down, and during breaks, I would I would eat Thanksgiving dinner, and then about an hour and a half later, I'm I'm sitting there full, and I'm I'm saying, "Okay, I better drink a lot of coffee out to stay awake." 
about an hour and a half later, the program director and his girlfriend stopped by to bring me Thanksgiving dinner. And I thanked them profusely and said, I'll, I'll eat that as soon as I have a break. I thought, I'll eat as soon as there's some room in my stomach. Um, and, and then about two hours after that, I don't remember, maybe it was the music director, whatever, uh, showed up with his girlfriend or wife and said, we've got Thanksgiving dinner for you. And I thought, I don't know if I can eat three Thanksgiving dinners in one day. I was much younger then, but but it was fun. But heck, this guy is complaining about getting a lot of work. And as uh, Dustin wrote in, what the hell is wrong with our youth? 26 hours a week or 25 hours is too hard. I worked 70 hours a week since I was 21. My 19-year-old works full-time. My 26-year-old works full-time. And my stepsister worked all the way through school and enjoy it. Suck it up, buttercup. No sympathy from this working man. And to your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. Let's start with with Ron in Tacoma. Hey, Ron, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Well, a couple of things, Lars. First of all, I just wanted you to know that the Democrat Party has been misnationalizing me for quite some time. I'm an American citizen, and they keep trying to uh, put me into some category of communism. So I just want to straighten (laughs) that out right now. Where where can I go to file a complaint about that? (laughs) Fair enough. That's a good point. Yeah, and two here, uh, I'm just curious. Um, uh, I, I believe that what needs to happen here with this uh, uh, the situation where they're going around correcting everybody's uh, Facebook pages and everything, I don't know where the, the press gets off uh, uh, correcting other people's articles. I thought, I mean, they can't even keep their own news straight. So where do they get off and have the authority to... Go ahead and uh, fact-check any other news agency. I believe, Lars, I listen to ABC fake news on, on KBI every day, and I have to listen to this nonsense, and they sit there and unravel all the talk show people every day uh, with their fake news. So can you go behind them and maybe fact-check the fake news that's coming on as you go to commercial? Well, that that's the problem. I'd ha- In the Northwest, I'd have to do it for 24 different stations, which is beyond even my capabilities, because we have 24 great stations, including KVI, including our flagship KXL. Could I fact check ABC, NBC, CBS, and all the other news organizations? No, I can't, but we'll, we'll pick certain stories to do. I, I went after CBS today. Because believe it or not, a reporter from CBS went to Carrie Lake, the young lady who's running for governor, and I think she's going to win as governor of Arizona. And he said, uh, what do you say about the ad? Apparently, Cindy Sicknick, who is the mother of the late Brian Sicknick, a cop who died on January 7th, the day after uh, the, the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th, she's apparently cut an ad for Carrie Lake's opponent, Ms. Hobbs, and said, my son died because of the things you people say. Well, Kerry Lake had a great reasoned response to it, but I'll tell you what I would have said. I would have said, well, Brian Sicknick did die the day after January 6th, and he was a capital cop. But the medical examiner of Washington, D.C. did an autopsy and said he died of natural causes. He died of a stroke. And the medical examiner also answered the question, was the stroke at all related to the incident of January 6th? It is not. So when you got people like Katie Hobbs and Joe Biden all saying five cops died on January 6th, they lie, they lie, they lie like rugs. 
That's the facts. That's the bottom line, and that's my fact-checking on at least one story out there. you got the Radio Northwest Network. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.